there is a journey you're meant to come here and do. And how much of it you get done depends, I think, on how well you listen, evolve, and I don't want to go too far down that path, but I think it is all very connected. Donna Ross Jones is a CEO of TMC, Transition Music Corporation. In her past, she's worked as a marketing executive. She's worked as a music supervisor. She's worked as an artist manager for such artists as Rick James and Eddie Murphy. And what got her into the music publishing industry is she wanted to have less risk and less pain. And she tells this story in her own words. And one of the funny things I took away from this conversation is that she tends to speak about herself in the third person. And she tends to call herself it. I find her remarkable. I find what she's trying to do for young artists currently remarkable in offering more diversity and inclusion in the marketplace in music publishing and more education. As she puts it, learning about the context of the industry. You have to learn that from someone who's been there and done that. Please check out their new initiative, Music and Media. Please stay tuned for a great conversation with lots of information and lots of takeaways with Donna Ross Jones. Enjoy. Welcome to Passion to Power with your host, Michelle Zeitlin. She's a creative producer who quote unquote wears many hats. She's also a talent and literary manager and founded the company Morzap Productions and Management. She develops people and projects across all media. Her guests encompass the gamut. From artists to authors, actors to activists, programming executives, development executives, and A&R, Michelle Zeitlin is excited to share her tips and tools for success through her conversations mostly via Zoom during quarantine. Please welcome Michelle Zeitlin, Passion to Power. so many creatives who are doing it themselves they're on spotify they've got great music what is that process of getting a sync license so that's actually our first topic um we've done this by application so we can make sure that we are giving opportunities to people who aren't obvious and we've chosen the first class and it's really exciting i think we're going to have to change our class size and look at our model because there's so many people who didn't get that opportunity who are now seeing it, but we'll figure it out. And where are you recruiting from? Are you going like to Musicians Institute, Berkeley Music? Is there, are these the I think that, I know I just did a class at Musicians Institute, so I know the guys went there. And this is where, this is the gift when you build a company, if you're really lucky, you don't know anything anymore because people are doing such a job. It's just happening. And they are, I'm pretty sure they're using social media. Nobody came to me and said how we're going to do this. They have run this. It's just amazing. I know they've done social. I don't know that they posted the schools because also if you have people in a business school or certain places, you've already eliminated a certain part of the market, right? Because those people already get it to a certain extent. They, they knew where to go. They knew what to do. We're trying to even reach a little beyond that. So I know they did a lot of it through social and through our socials. Our socials are pretty fast, but they found them. 
Good, then we'll put this out through our social on this podcast because my audience is made up of um, a few pods, but primarily the 18 to 22 aspirational film and television people, uh, music industry, I call them the artists, authors, activists, and actors, all the A's, I'm into alliteration, and then the other pod is our pod, you know, the 45 to 55, 57, whatever that is in the analytics, that are pivoting. Here's a cute story from Donna. She reminds us that sometimes our lucky breaks come at the most random times. She never thought she was going to be in the music industry, and yet serendipitously, she got her first opportunity, and it was all sort of random. So enjoy this story about Donna going into the Apple One Employment Agency in Glendale, California, in her early 20s, how she's swept in by a beautiful Nigerian woman who hires her on the spot. Here we go. I go to this job agency, and the woman who's managing it is, I don't know 100%, but I'm really sure today with what information I have that she was Nigerian. And she was gorgeous. I mean, I'd never seen anybody who even looked like that. And she seemed to float out of the back office. And she looked at me and says, come on in. And I was thinking, okay, cool, why not? And she hired me to work as a job counselor. Now, if you think about how ridiculous all of that is, <laughs> I'm 17. Makes I've never sense. worked. I go into this town. Everybody else get a job, right? So I get it. And helping others with career path, but it's like, but what's mine? <laughs> yeah, and she didn't have. I mean, the likelihood there were no people of color. So the likelihood that I found her and she, I was there. No, she found me. I now can look back and say that she went. Oh. Let me pluck this one up because it's kind of clueless. It's smart, but it's clueless. It's... Let, let, yeah, that's what you mean. I was like the little it. I don't know what that There's is. Not in the it third person. <laughs> yes, that's me. I don't know what that is, but it's not all there. And she adopted me and I very, for whatever reason, what she saw was true. And within a couple of months, I was helping everybody in the agency deal with people. People were being problems, bringing problems to me. And one of the problems, or someone, one issue someone brought to me was there was a company that every two weeks would fire whoever the temp placement was. And the way the temp business works is if you don't switch to permanent or you don't keep going, then you don't pay a fee. So they would let them go just before the fee would trigger. So someone came to me and said, well, you call these people. I don't know what to do. Okay. I do anything. Like I said, it doesn't have a clue. It just goes <laughs> about and does whatever you ask it. And I called this company and the man gets on the phone. I say, hi, um, I'm with Apple One and one of the other job counselors just said to me that we're having some problems. So I don't know. Is it that we're not sending you the right person? Are you really not interested in hiring? Let's try to figure that out so we can know where to go from here. So we either close the job order or we do a better job for you. And this phone goes silent. And about five minutes in, he says, well, you can close the job order. I said, okay. He said, and you can come and interview. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> what is this now? And I think I look, I say, excuse me, sir. I read the job order. It says all things I can't do. I'm not doing anything there. 
I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Garris, but I really don't believe I'm the person for you. I don't know how to do anything that's on here. And we'll close the order and I thank you. And we gave it a best, our best go and life goes on. And I hung up, I called the day. And then someone said to me, a friend of mine, said, you really should go and do the interview. You're just doing a part-time job. <laughs> You're figuring things out. Why wouldn't you? But again, I've got this sort of myopic vision about things and loyalty. And it just didn't fit. It didn't even dawn on me that I would go interview for something I didn't know how to do. But I was convinced to do it. And I did. They hired me. Man, interviewed me for five hours and then hired they hired me. you for five hours. Oh, I'd love to be a fly on that wall. Lord, no, you wouldn't. It, okay. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, it was just, the whole thing was just so bizarre. But I mean, I walked in and it was like, I'm going from this little small box that's my box into entertainment. So everything is gold records and glossy and just different. I'm not used to this at all. And when I get called in his office, he's wearing a monocle. And then I come in, he goes like this and he lifts up, his monocle falls out like, ah! I mean, to me, he's losing his eye, okay? <laughs> no idea. But I, I don't know. I mean, he talked to me for a very long time. Five hours later, he said, I'm offering you the job. And I was like, okay, why not? So here I am now, based on two totally random incidences, where just the willingness to say yes just kept moving me along. And I spent three years with them, and the people that were coming in were the top upper, upper echelon of the music industry and entertainment. It was the Ahmed Erdogan's and a bunch of names you probably wouldn't be familiar with, but they were all the other CEOs, presidents, heads of things. And I would just kind of watch them go by and I just kept absorbing and seeing absorbing. So next thing I know, I'm in Century City seated in a private room in a Japanese restaurant. It's me and Rick and Stevie Wonder. I'm trying to remember who else came, but, and I've never had sushi, you have to know. <laughs> so I'm like, hmm. But I tried sushi, I loved it. I'm in the midst of greatness. I'm just sitting there, like, I don't know. But then we finally leave and go back and Rick's like, well, we can't find your car. You have to go to my place. <laughs> I'm like, really? You can't find my car? <laughs> They, yeah, I told the guys to find it. They'll find it, but they can't find it yet. So you have to go to my place, which was the Rock and Roll Hyatt on Sunset, where he had the top suite. I'm like, I'm Is not that like uh, come up and, and see my chess oh, yeah. game or something? Or oh, absolutely. Poetry to me? Okay. Yeah, and, and I'll lock the door. Right, right, right. And I remember, I don't know what you're thinking, dude, but I'm out of here. And I took the keys to his Bentley. And I drove to my mother's house in the valley and went home. And then we, that was, I ended up signing him and we worked together. And it went really well until it didn't. Mm -hmm. We were, one of my job was 
a difficult job and an easy job. It was difficult because everyone in, in Europe at that time would just look at this picture and throw the music in the trash. Like, we, we don't know this look. This whole thing is not us. But the music was amazing. It was really growing here. It was becoming a very, very big deal. So I had a lot of leverage to sell it. What would you so, have called his genre at the time? Was it like the, the they funk? They called it punk funk. They called punk it punk funk. funk. Yeah, so they, they had a name for it. I didn't have to come up with one. Mm -hmm. And I had gotten, like, Motown US hadn't given a budget for any videos. So I got a budget for videos. I got 10000 And the video for Super Freak and the video for Give It To Me Baby were $5,000 each. To me? So, yes. They were paid for by RCA UK. Remember and when people paid for videos? Yeah. That's who funded it. That's what, and it was five grand RCA. and it was, you know, pretty simple. I mean, Super Freak was super basic and Give It To Me Baby, we're at a house. I mean, nothing to speak of, really easy. And things just kept taking off. I finally got him a tour, mostly promotional tour, with some really important performances in Europe. And it didn't go well. The only thing I asked is, please, be good. And he wasn't. <laughs> the drugs were starting to come in. You start seeing the dealers. I mean, I, that's a whole other story. I'm like, get out of here. Go away. You're a problem. Mm. But they don't go away because they're being asked in. And watching just the whole process start. And there's less getting up, there's less control, there's more partying. And, you know, I'm a toothpick, I'm not a bat. I can't really get your attention. I'm just this little thing poking at you. It would be better if you did this other thing. It would be really smart. Let's go do it. Ooh, Donna, you've got a really good Minnie Mouse voice. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're in Europe and it's just a nightmare. He's not showing up places. He's, I had people yelling at me. I've never had so many people yell at me in my entire lifetime. Like I did. But you were actually his personal manager. Yes. But just for outside the US, he didn't have an official manager. There was a team of five of us. And we all had a different role, opposed to there being a manager. And that was my space. I was in charge of it. That's what I took care of. So everything that was management, marketing, the whole thing. If it was in my, my end of the world, it came under my end of the world. So by the time we're two thirds, just in the UK, it was really difficult. And one morning we had live radio set up and all we had to do was show up for BBC Radio, Capital One, I can't remember the radio station, but they were the largest radio station. Well, I, he's not downstairs. There's loads of people also for this. And I go up to his room. I'm like, hello, could somebody get him? I'm like, no. <laughs> what do you mean? No, we're going to get him. Gotta get him up. Get him downstairs. I'm like, no, he's in his room. And again, I'm not too smart. You remember, this is still it. She just, it just runs around. It does its thing. It, it's not very critical thinking about the mindsets of other people. It doesn't have it. Or a clue as to why no one else wanted to get him up. I wouldn't see any of that. 
I go up the stairs, I'm a round staircase, I work my way up, poke my head in, there's Rick, two twins on either side, or twins, one on either side. They have been partying all night, hence the whatever <laughs> that's everywhere. I'm like, Rick, you gotta get up. There's people downstairs, we gotta go. Get the fuck out of here. And a champagne bottle gets thrown at me. I duck, fortunately, but he could have killed me. Or did a heck of a lot of damage. And I was like, in that moment, huh. Hmm. Didn't know my life was, I just, I, I didn't think it would go this far. And I said, okay, then you have to stay here. I'm gonna go downstairs. I'm gonna say you're not well, because you don't look well to me. And you just have to stay in for the next 24, 48 hours. Because if you think about the mirror in the UK, if you think about their trades, they're, they just will eat you alive in a minute. It'll be a big deal. They will kind of blast you and it won't be pretty. And he, he doesn't say anything to me, but then I just say, just stay here in the room now. Don't go anywhere. I'll do my part. Well, he does. That night he goes out to the most popular club in London. And guess what they do the next day? It's totally blasted. And that becomes my fault <laughs> somehow. And I say to him, literally the next day, I say, listen, after we finish Germany, I'm, I'm going home, I'm done. So I finished the tour, I did everything I said I would. But again, it was another thing where I said, oh, I don't think we like this. This isn't worth it. It's, we have to do something else. And for that several years, the people that I'd met were publishers that looked, they wore suits. They looked like normal people. I went, okay, clearly, I need to be more in the normal, rational, just regular people lane. Because I'm not very good in the, in the other lane so far. Well, that, I wouldn't necessarily knock yourself for not being able to control someone who clearly, you know, was a, a bit of a narcissist and selfish. I mean, it's, I'm a huge fan of his his music, but hearing this, I mean, you know, that that's the the downside of management. We're often um, not just managers, but we're babysitters. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> but I think some people have a better talent for detachment through the process. Right. I don't have that. I invest 100%. I'm affected by your decisions. Um, I believe that I have to be amazing, and if anything isn't as amazing, I take my role in it. And I think that a lot of people who are successful managers, not only are they good at what they, they do, but they're also very good at distancing, having emotional distance. I think a lot of them have emotional distance who do well. And I'm not saying that's the case for everybody, but it isn't a thing that I have. And then there's a lot of managers I know who literally just see talent as commodity and they function from that space. They, their view is that talent comes and goes. There's going to be another it's like one. a widget. Yep. That's why they're called talent because it's just, who do you put into the a commodity. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I've used that expression. So I want to just say something though, because um, there are those people who are able to distance and I marvel at them. I am not one of them. And I've been very successful in terms of managing artists. If we, if we measure success by the fact that they re-up their contracts and that there is money being made and that we're creating milestones that we both plan to make together. 
So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I've been there for the nightmares as well. But in general, I always say it's personal management and it is personal. And when you're walking into an artist's room and they've just had an all-nighter, that's personal. So if you can socially just use our current terminology, (laughs) great. But I don't think it's possible to be a really good hands-on personal talent manager and not be invested all the way across. And it's hard. There's the downside, definitely. Hopefully, we pick our clients and hopefully train them to be more self-sufficient and less selfish and and you know and don't have to lean on us to be taken care of as much as just to move the needle forward in their careers but it happens and you are clearly approach it from a place that's wise it's mature it's realistic i had none of those tools i was just you know a a runner i just let's do this let's do this i wasn't well-rounded i didn't have perspective i just had to go and i think you do have to bring perspective to it I think that being personal with it is what's important. And I will say that I see a lot of people succeed without genuinely doing that. It's just me. So, do I, I don't know what the answer is. You know, it's just con- this constant journey of learning what works for me. So, how did you get from being uh, the Rick James manager and deciding to follow the people with the suits on? That's what I want to know. It happened when I said, okay, I've now fired Rick and I I don't do well with, I don't have the tools to work with talent in this way. This did not work for me. I want, I kept looking for things that felt safer to tell you the truth. Like whether I could, I don't think I would have articulated that, but I don't Well, you said earlier running from pain, right? Yeah, it hurt. It hurts when you invest in someone and they have no regard for who you are or what you've done. It hurts when they don't care about your life. They'll throw something at you. That, for me, again, you're, you're talking to the rose-colored glasses, the idealist, and to have people just go smack. Says, no, I like my bubble. You just messed up my bubble, people. I, I need my bubble. My bubble's my superpower. So having it taken away and be disregarded and disposed of, it's just like, well, we don't like being disposed of. Or... And even though I walked away from Rick, he didn't fire me. He disposed of me. The day you throw something, <laughs> you don't care about anything. Well, you you know you may not have taken the final action, but you really were the starter. So all of my trips to Medem, I've been going to Medem every year, and I've met the Lester Sills, the Chuck K, and these guys acted like nice gentlemen. And I said, okay, I'm gonna, and one of my traits is I'm, I just, if I make a decision, I just do a thing. I don't think it, I don't necessarily think it all through. I just say, okay, I'm gonna go do that and I do it. And I said, you know, I like the idea of working with copyrights because I haven't done that great with people. <laughs> maybe that's not my skill. I said, maybe I can, I think I can develop songwriters. I think I have a feel for it. I think I can sign talent. I like what they do. So I did that and I started my first songwriter I signed had been working with Jimmy Miller who produced The Stones and he was really talented. Nothing became of his career for him so I guess I didn't it just in my mind it was fabulous but not the rest of the world. And I went from there to saying okay how do I, one of my strengths is I'm a strategist. I can see things. I can imagine things and I'm a realist from a standpoint of 
I don't expect anyone to give me anything. So when you approach anything from that, like building a company around an idea and then signing an artist, I did the same thing with publishing. I said, how am I going to fit in this business? Where is there a place for me? totally different monetization model. You go back to what I said about publishing, you may get one record, and even if you get another record song covered by a big artist, you don't know if that record's gonna sell or not. So you, you never knew where anything would come from, you just stayed in the game. Unlike film and television, every use generates some income. So okay, this is the one. So what's my new model? What am I gonna build that's different? How am I gonna come into this space, taking my experience in records and do it different? And that's how Transition was built. And the irony of the whole path that I will kind of wrap up into this little ball here because it's really so amazing. And I just, I think I'm so grateful that it's such a freaking big deal is that then my son was born. So I just had built this whole new model for a company. And my goal was based on all my experiences with talent, with other managers, with other companies who would steal my staff. I had one particular publisher who kept stealing my staff. He'd wait for me to train them and then he'd steal them because he was at a major and he'd so get my- teaching in every industry. Every industry. So I went, okay, I need to build a system that is much more automated. Again, we're minimizing risk. I just keep learning how to minimize risk. You get back up and you just build a better mousetrap. You get back up, you build a better mousetrap. So I had literally, right as I was finishing building this new mousetrap, where I was really leveraging technology hard, which people weren't doing, I was building systems because I wanted things automated. That's when my son was born. And Nicholas, from the time he was born, even though he had no diet, he was developmentally doing okay, he had a lot of health issues, a lot of gastro, a lot of problems. So literally from the day, well, from when I left to go have him, my life changed drastically. But I put the system in place. So first, I'm just not there all the time because Nikki's not doing good. He needs that attention. I'm mom first. Sorry, that's it. People first, kids first, my kids first. But I put this machine in place. So everybody in the office kind of knows what to do. Um, and gosh, there's so many other little parts here that are hysterical that I'm just trying to think of which ones are encouraging to share with people. But I'll just hold on to this one for the moment. But I built this thing, and then I'm literally gone for the better part of 12 years. In and out. I close my offices. I get a divorce. My husband's incredibly expensive because people are suing him. I'm in the midst of this litigation with folks he got into business with that are like, I think they're straight up criminals. They're threatening us. They're parking at the bottom of my driveway. I'm trying to figure out dealing with my son. <laughs> dealing with my rather interesting ex-husband, trying to keep a business going. And this infrastructure that I built for Transition allowed it, and this totally different operating model, allowed the business to continue to function.
continue to function and it's even group. Can you share what that model is? I can share it in general. I mean, the specificity gets pretty deep, but I just, one, it was moving from records into film television. The next part was looking at some of the things that could have been done more effectively because we were small and nimble. We could move. Looking at the things that were barriers because managing IP, you know, the copyrights, all of the administration, admin, publishing is really administration heavy. And if there isn't a system for that, just the people and the processes of properly, properly administering will just run up a bill that's not even manageable. But then also it's how do you get in? It's the same with everything. I mean, how do you, where's your wedge to come into the market? And I decided after spending a bit of time doing what's called, I call single transaction, which is you try to get one song with one person, you're just selling a lot of people, hoping that something hits. I went out like that. I want to build partnership. So the core of it was I built really good operation information management systems. And then I went after building partnerships because I could do it. I took a whole bunch of different pieces, which included at the time, give me your music. If I can't, if I don't get it placed, you can have it back. But then I went and locked in clients to guarantee that I had placement because I'd learned if you don't have distribution, you got nothing. So the model really was, let's understand who needs us. Let's look for who's looking for us, opposed to competing where everybody else is in line. Because we've been doing a lot of that. It's like, that's not working. Let's build something else where we're bringing something. Someone's getting something. Let's really get that win-win. And I took that mindset into it, which, you know, wasn't a big music industry mindset. And I didn't particularly care for the record industry, by the way. I didn't do well with the people. I was tired of being pinned in corners and just got off. Pinned and cornered in terms of sexual harassment? Oh, yeah. Well, we didn't have a word for it. It was just up to you to figure out how to deal with it. Just called dodge it. Yeah. It's called, you know, it was like, okay, my job always is to not hurt your ego too badly. Right. But I still have to get out of here. Right. That was just what you did every day. There wasn't a me too or anything. <laughs> you didn't even talk about it. It was your job and it was your job to figure it out. End of story. Figure it out. Or no, do whatever you want. <laughs> but you... That's a whole nother chapter, but ugh, you just took me my, I went so far back in my brain for a second. It's like, oh, I want to well, come forward. I want to come back to the sort of operational um, mm -hmm. system you came up with because first of all, there's been such a change in the way the music industry's worked in the mm -hmm. last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it was so systematic and it was so much owned by the big companies, uh -huh. record labels. And now it's so much about the DIY, the independent artist. And what I loved reading about when I was reading about you was that you're really trying to find ways for artists to continue to make a living at what uh -huh. they do. So if uh -huh. you could speak to that a little bit, I'd love uh -huh. to hear about it. Yeah. Which part? Well, in general, I mean, I didn't, one of the reasons I didn't want to be in the record industry anymore is I just didn't like the model. Um, one of the things they'd done with Eddie was we've gotten one of Eddie's records like up into the top 10. And I'm sitting at Columbia with a group of the top executives and I watched something that I didn't know happened. And that something was they in that room made a decision of which records, which of their records that were headed up to number one, they were going to support and which ones they were going to let die. I didn't 
think it worked like that. Lord knows how I thought it worked. But I just thought, hey, we keep everybody going. You know, the, the audience is going to decide. And couldn't have been any more wrong. They killed that record so fast, I didn't even know what hit me. I went, ew. Again, that's that lesson about distribution. How does it work? Who's controlling things? But it was just one more way I didn't like the record industry. It's like you have no control. Everybody's paying each other off. I mean, I was dealing with some of the people who were getting the payola all the time. I mean, I was never giving anybody anything. But you see- oh, That really like, existed, the payola. Oh, Lord, yes. Paying, paying for radio time. Oh, yeah. And the payola lived in everything from drugs to women to parties, it to cash, to whatever. And it was, it was how it worked. That was how you greased, you know, that wheel. You took care of those people. So it was a completely closed system. And then I watched Napster come in and they ignored it. Oh, and okay, y'all are just not too bright. This whole business model where you're controlling what the audience gets to hear. So you're controlling what everybody likes. There is no freedom in this for anybody. There, you're totally managing this process. You're driving it. It isn't bottom up. It's completely top down from your few companies. And I was like, I don't even like it. I don't know how it's sustainable in a new world. So I got out in time, which was fortunate. But um, as far as artists, so that was one of the first things I went, how did they even have an opportunity? And there was a lot of the seeing how, where women fell in that mix. It was not pretty. It was not. I mean, they would, if you were, you could just be, tossed aside, you were really quite irrelevant as artists, as well as in any aspect from the business. There was only a few women who were making some strides. So again, the whole model did not work for me and building something that would allow people to make a living. So as the record industry and the model we knew started to fall apart, a lot of people no longer had gigs. There were the studio musician slowly disappearing because no one was going into the Larrabee studios, no one was going into record plants. These writer producer types were now doing it in their own homes. So that whole group of people were now struggling to find a place. And that was the first set of creatives that I went, okay, I wanna help this group. They're really talented, they're really good, and they're not even getting to make a living doing what they love. So as I started moving towards creating music where my emphasis was not on hit songs, which is totally subjective anyway, but rather just on good music. And the model was, if you're in the transition music body of content, we've already sold it. They've bought transition music. So now we get to put in the content that fits in the place. So that's what you mean by partnerships. And yeah. I think you told me, if I may, uh, in our previous conversation, you said you have a relationship for a long time with Byron Allen, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you kind of speak to how that works? If you're a partner with a company or ongoing content creators, mm -hmm. you just basically have to give them, procure the right content music to fit mm -hmm. whatever film and television projects they're working on? Yeah, in the case of Byron, when he first came to me, Byron had three shows. And Byron was having two problems. The one was, yeah, he was using a library. They'd give him whatever they'd give him, but it was costing him too much. 
parts music that wasn't necessarily, he had no other service with it. And Byron tells this story. So I'll tell how he tells it because it's so much more interesting than how I tell it. He said, I'll do you one better, Mr. Allen. I will provide all the music, but I'll also help you build a revenue stream around music and manage everything about it. He said, okay. And the loyalty that grew out of that was truly astounding. We literally would go for years and not talk because my team knew this is how we curate. This is how we acquire whatever new shows he adds. You take care of them. You show up, you provide extraordinary service. And that was another thing that wasn't music industry per se, the idea of extraordinary service. It was more about I'm being creative and I'm being amazing. And a lot of people, the idea that you have to deliver something in 24 hours, that you have to do it now, that it's not about you, it's about what they want. It made the process of getting music a lot harder for people who created content if they didn't have someone to navigate that. So you have an extraordinary library at your fingertips. Yeah, we have a large library. We've got about 100 composers that we routinely bring into the fold, especially when we're doing new content. And it's all about our ability to also choose good content, to be very clear with people what works and doesn't work here and say, this is what we're looking for. This is, you know, the bar it's got to meet. And as long as you do that, every time it fits in a place, you'll have a shot. It won't matter if you're Joe or Steve or Cindy, or it doesn't matter. It's about what you create. And then beyond that, it's about what the people on the other side who created the content choose, but everybody has a fair shot. So is it like sync rates? Yeah, we sync. what we do is we acquire a lot of content. We create a lot of original content that we acquire, and then we license it for use in media. So whether we're licensing it to Paramount or we're licensing it to Byron, doesn't matter. That transaction is exactly the same. And is it like through a BMI? Uh, through well, BMI and ASCAP or CSAC are the signatory, are the organizations that the composers or songwriters belong to or that we belong to the publisher. So they're always in the mix as a signatory. And they are the ones that collect the money from like television, radio, internet, and then distribute it to the publishers or the rights holders. Got it. So they are, we are like an entertainment partners is in our on camera world. They are the, no, they're more like your, what are they like? Because they're really, no, they're really another, it's a a different thing. So BMI and ASCAP and CSAC, we call them the music police. So their job is to collect the royalties from anywhere music is broadcast. Doesn't matter if it's a venue, if it's you know a big concert hall, or if it's Joe's Bar and Grill, or if it's a television show, or if it's ABC or NBC or Netflix. Their job by consent decree is to collect that revenue and distribute it to rights holders. So it's a very interesting, different sort of space. It's kind of unique. It's, I guess, like the union in some cases where once your TV shows there at once, you're going to get royalties and they're going to go and find the royalties. But it's a far more aggressive process. And they have millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of titles in their repertoire. So how they disseminate that's also very interesting. That would be a whole nother conversation. 
but the right side of publishing does get very complicated. And it's one of the barriers to entry, which is why we have this education program that's about to happen. But, oh, good. Let's talk about that. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about your education, music and media. So one of the things we've always done here at Transition, when I say talking about helping creators make a living doing what they love, I've also been completely and totally dedicated to helping creative executives make a living doing what they love. So this company is really known for bringing people in and training them in ways that move the needle. So if you finish one of our programs here, you've actually learned something that is valuable to the rights industry that you can't learn unless somebody teaches you. So we make sure people learn those things all along. It's really important, otherwise you don't get entry. One of the things that I found as far as young executives, the people that were coming into transition and wanted to be in publishing were almost always college graduates, white college graduates, who could understand the idea of acquiring rights, building wealth, um, the business side of entertainment. And everyone else was attracted to the sexy side. You know, I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to rap. I'm going to be a rapper. I'm going to be a big star. Or if they wanted to be entrepreneurs, they had no idea about this publishing side. It was records. We're just going to sell records. Whereas a lot of the really big wealth is built on the publishing side. You know, what is it that helps you get back up after you've been hit so hard? What is it that helps you to keep going when there is nothing in front of you that says it's going to be okay? You won't be cheated. It may not look how you think. It may not, none of the challenges may come in the package you expect. Lord knows none of mine came in the package I expected. But I was always really consistent with what my priorities were, what was important, and who I was. That's a pretty great wrap-up, man. <laughs> and uh, I got to say, I, I can't take any credit for giving you script notes. Uh, well, I, I thank you for letting me ramble for people. No, I mean, um, I just wanted to visit a couple things you said for some short sound bites, if you would. Sure. Um, let's go back, first of all, to music and media and this new launch. You said you have a class starting. When is that? That class, I'm pretty sure it's November. Let me check the exact date. It's November the 13th, and it's going to be, well, we're doing it at 2.30 here. But I know the guys, all they have to do is go to Transition Music, look at any of our social, or just reach out to Creative Services at transitionmusic.com and let them know you're interested, because the series is going to keep going, and we'll keep our goal will be to continue to refine it and make it better and make it better so that people get as much out of it as possible. Donna Ross Jones wraps up this interview with a couple takeaways, but I wanted to emphasize what she said on her IMDB biography, which is, I love creating opportunities where none existed before. I'm very excited for future opportunities with Donna Ross Jones. I thank you for the time that you and your team put into this interview and podcast. And I recommend that aspiring young music publishers look into their music and media programs for education and context. Thanks for listening. I mean, 
transition music, a lot of people think it's called that because of the musical transition. It's not. It's called that because everything freaking changes all the gosh darn time. I was always in transition for one reason or another, and that became the name of the company. So embracing that because there's not a darn thing you can do about it. Embrace it, get past it. And I'm not saying that from a, oh, it's easy or anything, but you just, you have to keep figuring out who you are and embracing the fact that nothing on the outside stays the same. And when I talked about how the whole path was already laid out for me, it was just a question of how long it took me to get there. I started in special needs, not even knowing, but having an attraction to it. Ended up with a son with special needs. Had put together a company based on nothing but adversities that then allowed me to care for my kiddo. Does any of that make sense? It doesn't. It's not logical. It's not guaranteed. It doesn't even... I mean, there's nothing about that story that's anything other than you kept saying yes. You kept moving forward. I just kept going. I kept saying yes. I kept moving. And believing that you don't plant pumpkins and get thistles. I don't believe the universe does that. And holding on to that. Because it is going to keep changing. And I kept studying people that it was working. And then looking at me who I am. I have so many friends who used to say to me, why aren't you taking this executive job? I was offered my first VP position at a record company. I think I was 21. And I said, no, because I'd already learned about me that I'm so good at looking forward. I, I don't know how to look behind me. And part of success in the corporate setting is you have to do 360. You have to look at everybody, everything. You have to manage people, not just your job. And I was more of a, let me do my job person. So I think knowing who you are, looking for those opportunities, finding other people who where is that thing that's that other me? Because there's always something. And I'm such an advocate for women in becoming entrepreneurs. You are wonderful. Go take on your day. And thank you for including me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye, Bye. Smiley. <laughs> <laughs>